So today it's my pleasure uh, to introduce uh, a friend and colleague I've known for many years now, uh, Christy Lang Hurlson. But first, I'm going to say a smidge about the lecture that she's giving. So the Ryan Lecture is an endowed lecture at Princeton Seminary named for the Reverend Dr. Edwin H. Ryan, class of 1927. I encourage you to look him up. He has an interesting history. So uh, he uh, is a graduate of 1927. He was involved in the formation of Westminster Theological Seminary. So he sort of left his home Presbyterianism for a while, was a little part of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And then later on, he uh, became disenchanted with that and returned to the fold, as we might say, in the late 1940s. And then he served as secretary here to President um, McCord. So, and he had three children, one of whom is our beloved Abigail Ryan Evans in the front row. So, so family and friends set up this endowment, and what I love about it is that this is the one lectureship at the seminary that must take place at reunion. So it is for alumni. So that's what's special about this. So, and so it's my pleasure to introduce to you Christy Lang Hurlson, who will be giving the Ryan Lecture this morning. Christy is just very recently promoted to associate professor with tenure of religious and theological education at Villanova U University. That's a big feat, friends, from assistant to associates. I just want to say yay. Where she's been, she's been on the faculty since 2017. She's an ordained Presbyterian minister, and she received her Master of Divinity and Master's of Christian Education degrees from Princeton Seminary in 2005. She's one of my special dual degree students, as we call them here. Christy served the Brick Presbyterian Church in New York City as associate pastor from 2005 to 2010. And then she returned to Princeton Seminary and earned her PhD in practical theology and Christian education in 2016. At Villanova, Christy co-leads the Heart of Teaching program, which trains masters and doctoral students to teach theology and religious studies. She also teaches undergraduate courses about children, spirituality of attention, and ecology. In 2022, Christy received both Villanova University's Junior Faculty Excellence in Teaching Award and Whitworth University's Mind and Heart Service Award. Her scholarship focuses on ecological faith amid consumer culture, <coughs> creative pedagogies, and young people. She is currently directing a grant about the formation of children's ecological spirituality in worship. She lives with her spouse, Reverend Dr. Adam Hurlson, uh, PhD 13 and MDiv 08 from Princeton Seminary, and their two sons, Elliot and Eamon, outside of Philadelphia. I'm going to give you one fat, fun fact about Christy. So I got to sit in a meeting with Christy one day, and I've discovered that the best thing about Christy is you can read her thoughts on her face. <laughs> the absolute best facial expressions of anyone I've ever been around. So if you want to sit in a meeting, it gets a little dry, just look at Christy and you know exactly what she's thinking on her face. So um, Christy and Adam have served as uh, family retreat leaders for me and my family when my kids were little growing up. We've worshipped together. We've, we go way back. So it is a particular joy for me to introduce uh, you to her today and get to share Christy and her work with you. So please give her a warm welcome. Thank you, Dale, for that very kind introduction. We are good friends who go way back, as you say, and it is such an honor to be here with you, to be here with all of you, alumni of Princeton Theological Seminary. It's beautiful to see some really good friends in the room. Uh, I know Dr. Nate Stuckey is here somewhere, hiding in the corner. There he is. So uh, Nate and I did our coursework together and wrote our comprehensive exams in adjoining rooms over <laughs> across the street. Uh, wonderful, wonderful friend, Chip Hardwick, whom I've known for years and years. Uh, I am so moved and honored that my college president, Bill Robinson, and his amazing wife, Bonnie, are here today. So it is beautiful to see both of you. And, uh, and Dr. Evans, how wonderful uh, that your family began this great tradition of this lecture, and I'm so honored to see you today. And I understand your sister is watching online as well, so greetings to her as well, and to all of you. Thank you. 
I'd like to ask you to begin by pretending you're a student back in this room. Get out that cool desk that folds up and over. And uh, in 30 seconds, would you just draw a tree, please? It could be any kind of tree. Evergreen, deciduous. You could draw a spruce or a magnolia, a maple, an elm. that you have drawn your beautiful, magnificent tree, would you just introduce your tree to a friend next to you? Make a friend, meet a neighbor, introduce your tree to them, please. Wow, you are amazing, great work, beautiful trees. Now, I, my guess is most of you drew something like what I drew, which is maybe like a line with some, you know, a trunk sprouting up and some stuff happening at the top. All right, got that? Okay. Uh, now, that's how most people draw a tree, if we're asked to draw a tree. Now, of course, a tree is not, in fact, really just this trunk that sprouts out of the ground and has stuff happening at the top. Drawing a tree the way I drew it is, it's as though I were asked to draw a person and I only drew their arms. Much more important than this top part of the tree that we see are the roots, of course, growing down deep under the ground. And down there, those roots, they are drinking up moisture and absorbing nutrients, and fascinating recent studies show they're actually communicating with other trees, having these slow conversations all year long with each other. They're feeding millions of tiny creatures. There's this whole life down there scurrying and pulsing. When you stand on the ground under a tree and you look up, you have this sense that you're covered by something but you're not just covered by something. The tree is actually invisibly embracing you because while the branches stretch over your head, the roots are growing out under your feet. Most of the time, when we look at a tree, we don't see that hidden life, that hidden embrace. That part of the tree has simply gone away. It's out of sight, out of mind. A few weeks ago, I woke up to a sound I realized I hadn't heard in months. It was the sound of the dawn chorus, robins and cardinals calling out. And I realized with a shock, oh, they'd come back. One of my children once asked me, do robins migrate? I was stumped. <laughs> I realized I didn't know. I knew I didn't really see robins in winter, but I'd never really thought of them as migratory birds. I realized that for me, robins just kind of went away.
away. Every week, Americans all over the country roll their garbage cans and recycling bins to the curb. The bins are full of stuff that we want to throw away. The most recent calculation says that this country sends away 292.4 million tons, I'll say that again, 292.4 million tons of municipal solid waste per day. So in a little more than a year, each of us sends away a literal ton of stuff in our garbage and recycling, and about half of it ends up in landfills. Those landfills are real places with names like Rolling Knolls Landfill <laughs> here in New Jersey, or Cedar Hills Regional Landfill in Washington State, where I grew up. They're often built in neighborhoods already afflicted by poverty and violence. And yet, for those of us who throw this stuff away, those landfills don't really seem to exist, do they? If you don't live near them, if you don't see them or smell them, they're practically non-existent. And this is what municipal waste systems were, in large part, built for. So some people could throw things away, far, far away. People get sent away, too. Every week, Americans from all over the country get sent to jails and prisons. Nearly two million people are in American prisons right now. They get convicted of crimes, and we send them away. This is what the prison system was built for, to send some people far away. What is this capacious place away? <laughs> this land of away that holds the songs of migratory birds and the slow conversations of tree roots and all our garbage and people, so many people. My family just watched the Marvel TV series called Loki. And if you've seen Loki, you know that in it, uh, there's a place at the end of time called the void where everything extraneous and unwanted in the approved story gets dumped. Things just pile up there so that they won't bother the people who are back in the real story. We know, of course, that there is no away. There's no place called away. Away just means not here, not with me, not where I can see it or touch it. Yet if something has been gone long enough, we do begin to feel as though it doesn't exist. And if we've never noticed it, well, then we don't miss it. Out of sight and out of mind. Now, you may have heard this phrase, there is no away. It's attributed to ecologist Barry Commoner, who proposed four laws of ecology. And the second law of ecology is everything must go somewhere. Trash doesn't go away. Carbon doesn't go away. There is no away. It goes somewhere. Landfills, incinerators, oceans, the atmosphere. In 2015, artists Sean Martindale and J.P. King created a sculptural installation in Toronto called There Is No Away. Visitors were invited to walk through long corridors and you can see on either side are giant bales of recycling. 
You could watch videos of bulldozers pushing mountains of trash at Toronto's waste management sites. It reminded people that everything must go somewhere. The installation, it brings trash back into sight, back into mind. Humans just tend to forget about the things that aren't in front of us. And that is just being human. Nobody can think about everything all at once. We are not God. We don't see the whole world at once. But the thing is, over the past few centuries, we have figured out ways to manage the world so that we can keep a lot of stuff out of sight and therefore out of mind. And those with the power to do so have shaped these little worlds of convenience that exclude much of the bigger world. Little worlds of convenience, little worlds. Anders Schinkel is a Dutch philosopher and historian. In his book, Wonder and Education, he talks about two ways we refer to the world, two kinds of world. First, there's what he calls the intersubjective world, the intersubjective world. This is the humanly constructed world that I sense and that I've come to understand. We're getting at this when we say, my world just crumbled, my world which is, of course, always a world we're sharing with people right around us that we have conversations with, that we look at the world with. I come to know this intersubjective world through sense, through my senses, through language. And since we speak languages with other people, it's not just a, a personal subjective world. It's an intersubjective world. We interpret events and situations in our subgroups. And because we do that in our subgroups, we can say that different groups live in different worlds from each other. So think of it right now. A Central American refugee mothers right now are cooking breakfast for their children. And Japanese fishermen are sailing out into the dark ocean, hoping for a good catch. And members of a Swiss bicycling team are sweating their way to the top of a mountain and a Nigerian teacher is giving a math exam. And you and I are here. We inhabit different worlds. So that's the first kind of world, our human worlds that we've constructed through language and practice. It's the kind of world I mean when I say we've shaped little worlds of convenience that allow us to just send things away. Schinkel cautions, however, that we don't just live in different worlds. We don't just live in different worlds, worlds shaped however humans shaped them. He says we also have the insistent, intuitive idea that the world is, in a sense, just out there, that it's independently real, real independently of what we make of it. He writes that even with our diverse languages and cultures, people also inhabit a common world. This is the world that pushes back on our constructions, that disrupts our assumptions. It's as though, Schinkel says, that we're standing on a threshold, a threshold between things as we know them and things out there. It's like a doorway that has my constructed world on one side and mystery on the other. Sometimes that mystery begins to break into our little world. And when it does, we sense that the world is other than we had thought. <clears throat> we feel something happening at the limits of our understanding. We sense that something is crashing across the threshold. And that sense, that sense that there is more or that the world is other than we thought, that feeling, that thought, that is wonder. Wonder. 
In wonder, Schinkel says, we feel that there is more or always other than we thought or thought we knew. Wonder stirs the imagination. Well, discovering that more, that sense of a bigger world, it can be delightful and exhilarating. A few years ago, my family, uh, with my spouse here, Adam, and our children, we were at a bird preserve. We were walking around and we saw a man by a bunch of bushes who was waving a net around. And we walked up and asked, what are you doing? And he explained that he was a researcher on native bees and that he was researching the health of sweat bees. Sweat bees, <laughs> we said. And he showed us tiny, iridescent, gorgeous native bees, minuscule compared to a honeybee, yet crucial pollinators. I was astonished. I thought, how have I ever thought my world complete? I didn't even know these were here. And then I started looking for them and realized they're everywhere. They're keeping the world going with their pollination. My little world had just gotten infinitely more interesting. Discovering that more can be delightful. But discovering that one's world is incomplete, it can also be shocking. When I was in high school, I went with my church on spring break trips to build houses in Tijuana, Mexico. And after we got home, our group would present to our church about what we had learned, what we'd experienced. And I vividly recall the year that a senior student a young white man who'd grown up in a middle-class American suburb. He got up to the microphone and he said this, I've gone to Mexico for four years, and the first year I was just astonished by people's poverty. I didn't know people lived like that. Then in the second and third year, I learned Spanish, and I discovered that the people who live there, they're just like me. I mean, we're, we're both people. And then he said, and then this year, I realized something new. It occurred to me, he said, that when I went home on an airplane, they stayed there. I realized their lives don't stop when I leave. He said, I know that sounds so obvious, but I... I really realized that they don't start existing when I arrive and stop when I leave like a TV show about poor people. They live there every day, right now. The student had just become aware of the limit of his little world because his world had been punctured by a much bigger world. He was realizing that his world and their world, it was a common world. He was seeing that there is, in fact, no away, just another place with its own life. When some part of that blank void away, it becomes a real place with real people and creatures, we stop. In the light of that new knowledge, we suddenly sense how incomplete, how insular, how parochial our little world has been. We register that we live in a common world and that we've always lived in this common world. That's the thing we say, oh, the reality isn't new. All along, it was the case. All along, and I just never got it. For me, such wonder has often happened through books. Do you know this feeling? You put down a book and you say, I will never be the same. I hope every one of you can think of some book where that has happened to you. I will never be the same. I was a teenager when I first read Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. She wrote of a tree that hid 300 birds, birds that fled in waves as she approached it. And this is what her prose did for me. It, it flushed a thousand meanings from the ordinary natural world. 
and I never looked at the world the same way again. When I was in college, I encountered Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, and I watched as Alyosha, in great grief, falls to the ground and kisses the earth without knowing why he's doing it. He wants to ask forgiveness for the whole world and to love the whole world, and he doesn't even know why. And I found myself thinking, I've never read anything like this, and I found myself weeping. When I read Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad, I felt for the first time in my life, with my whole being, the evil of slavery and the unfathomable dignity of those enslaved people who insisted on their own soul's survival. I will never be the same, I thought. Or when I read Elizabeth Strout's novel, Olive Kittredge, I realized I'd never contemplated what it might feel like to grow old. <laughs> Surprise. Or when I stumbled across Robin Wall Kimmerer's gorgeous book of essays, Braiding Sweetgrass, and I read that in her indigenous language, water is alive. The water is being a lake. The water is being a stream. And I thought, I'll never look at water the same way again. Or when I read Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz's book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, and I learned that for over a century, our country's mythology has described Native Americans as extinct, as just gone to some away, when in fact, they've simply been forced to segregate or assimilate. Schinkel says, wonder can be a dizzying experience, a dizzying experience. We suddenly sense a depth to existence that is normally hidden from view. And in the same stroke, we're revealed to ourselves as superficial creatures. Most of the time, we skim across the surface of things, barely aware of their presence. It's as if we spend our days in a boat drifting on the surface of an ocean, constantly looking to the horizon, but afraid to plumb the depths of the ocean beneath us, as if the mere awareness of those depths might sink us. When the bigger world crashes across the threshold of our little world, we can feel frightened. And we might be tempted to avoid these moments to avoid standing in that threshold, to shut the door. Maybe our lives are already complicated enough. Maybe our communities are already struggling enough. Maybe we just want to keep our lives small and tidy. But wonder, it is worth the risk. Because when your world gets bigger, when your world gets bigger, then you can act differently. Schinkel writes that the experience of wonder, the experience of wonder, it enables us to establish a relationship with things that we were already bound up with. We can establish a relationship with things we were already bound up with. Think about it. We are always already connected to the migrating bird, to the tree roots, the landfill, the prisoner, the refugee. But now, if we realize, if we really realize that we share a world, that those things and people don't inhabit a blank void, but are really real, well, then we can ask ourselves whether we're acting as though we share a common world. When I really believe there are massive tree roots and innumerable creatures under my feet, well, I feel so cavalier about pouring pesticides on the grass. So Schinkel writes, wonder opens the possibility of reconfiguring our everyday connections with the world, of reweaving the patterns of our interwovenness. And friends, we need to reweave this pattern today. Our species is living as though there's a vast away where we can dump everything that doesn't fit the small worlds we prefer. 
Schinkel cites the Polish Nobel Prize winner Olga Tokarczyk, who says, we need a way of looking that shows the world as being alive and living and interconnected, a new way of looking. We need a new way of looking, one that sees there is no away, only a living and interconnected world. But how? How do we go about finding a new way of looking? How can we learn to welcome and embrace the experience of wonder? How can we gain the eyes to see and the ears to hear? Well, fortunately, some of us here have practiced seeing the invisible. in a little thing we call faith. The Swedish theologian Ola Sigurdsson is concerned with precisely the question of how we look at the world. He insists that our gazes can be transformed. Our gazes can be transformed. He says that Christian faith involves a particular way of looking at the world, a way that learns to see the invisible through the visible, that loves without seeking to control. This way of looking begins when we realize that all along God has been in relationship with us. All along, all along, and I never knew. When we have this wondrous realization that God has all along loved us, it opens to us the possibility that we can love and approach God. Sigurdsson writes, the gaze of faith sees more. The gaze of faith sees more than what reveals itself for the eye. It beholds the invisible in the visible. Christians first learned to behold the invisible in the visible through the experience of the incarnation. In the visible Jesus, the disciples beheld the invisible God. Now, of course, after the first generation of Christians, one could not gaze upon the visible Jesus. He had, in a sense, gone away. <clears throat> and yet Christians experienced the ongoing presence of Christ. They learned that they beheld Christ in their love for each other, in their love for the world, in their desire for God, in the breaking of the bread together. And so we get sacraments. If you recall from your excellent training at Princeton Theological Seminary, St. Augustine called sacraments? Great. Invisible signs of invisible graces. The sacramental insight is that we encounter God through material things and human practices, and that we need these material things to see God. When things are invisible to us, we need help seeing them. When things are out of sight, underground, or have been sent away, we need reminders to call them to mind. In the sacraments, our good God gives us things to see, to touch, to feel, to taste. We break the bread, we drink the cup, we pour the baptismal water. These are all material things, human symbolic actions. And here's the thing about them. They have to be explained. If you're ordained, you had to learn how to explain it correctly. They have to be explained. And then here's how we explain them. Let me tell you a story on the night that Jesus was betrayed. The artists who created There Is No Away they're giving a visible sign of a deeply uncomfortable reality that is hidden from us. They're offering a kind of lowercase sacrament to form our way of looking at the world. These sacraments then, they unspool into long complicated stories about a complicated, vulnerable, beautiful world. Stories like the ones we encounter when we read a book that changes us forever. 
But of course, walking through one art exhibit isn't really enough to change us. So Sigurdsson notes that we need more than one moment. We need practice. And for Christians, that's called liturgy. He says the gaze of faith is a liturgical gaze. Through liturgy, through prayer, through worship, through sacraments, through meditation, through scriptural study, through service to our neighbor, we learn to see and experience the invisible through the visible. We learn to await wonder. We learn to stand in the threshold of our own worlds and let a bigger reality flood in. In our liturgy, we practice seeing the invisible God. And crucially, that invisible God points us back to all those things and people who have been banished to the void of a way. The Catholic womanist theologian M. Sean Copeland says in her book, Enfleshing Freedom, that in the celebration of communion, we remember and encounter Christ, and we also remember and encounter all those with whom Christ stands in solidarity. Those who've been persecuted, dishonored, abused, sent away, rendered invisible. And we discover in this meal that we are connected to each other. She says, for it is through and in Christ's own flesh that the other is my sister, is my brother. Indeed, the other is me. We learn we were always already connected. Now watch out, folks, because if you start practicing this new kind of looking, well, it's going to change you. You might just become a new kind of person. So Anders Schinkel, who writes about wonder, says wonder can become a disposition, a mood, a background tone to your whole life. And Sigurdsson, Ola Sigurdsson says that if you practice seeing the invisible for long enough, you just might become a doxological person. I would like that printed on my tombstone, by the way, honey. <laughs> doxological, as in doxology. The doxological person, Sigurdsson writes, sees her own existence as a fundamental relationality and as a gift. The doxological person says, my life, my life, my very existence, it's a gift. And it's interwoven with all these other lives that are also gifts. The doxological person knows there's no way beyond our small worlds. It's not a blank void, but other people and places and creatures, and we belong to each other. Other people and creatures who can also praise God. Would you sing with me? Let's listen to what it says. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God, all creatures here below. Praise God above the enemy host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. We need new ways of looking, or perhaps an old way, the way of faith, which flows out into doxology. An imperiled planet needs doxological people, people overcome by wonder, people who've stood in the threshold of their own small lives, clutching the doorframe while the gale force of mystery rushes over them and rearranges their world. And they say, all along, and I never knew. And since doxological people don't make themselves, the world needs communities where doxology happens, where liturgy changes the way we look at the world, where we practice beholding the invisible. It needs churches.
and its leaders who've been bowled over by wonder, who have realized again and again and again that there is no way, only other lives. The world needs institutions, places like Princeton Seminary that train those leaders to help people see the invisible God who points us to look for all those who've been rendered invisible. We need places. We need places where people, where people learn to draw trees, where people learn to draw trees by starting with the roots. I believe now is the time for questions. Uh, yes, sir. What's your name? Mark. Hi, Mark. I just, it, it's just discouraging to me. <laughs> yeah. And because they're walking past beautiful trees, waving in the wind, they're walking past gardens, they're walking past, in some cases, beautiful architecture. Yeah. And they're, they're just, there's Thank no you. wonder, there's no wonder going on there. So I think this is where spiritual practices are so important. I'm really glad you bring this up. I teach a course on attention to undergraduates. And one of the things we talk about is the way our technology today both has the capacity to introduce us to things in the world we never knew about. So it can be a place where we actually have our worlds opened up. Or, you know, the person who has the earbuds in, uh, it, maybe they're just shutting everything out, or maybe they're listening to some grand piece of music that is filling them with ecstasy. And we don't know, right, from the outside. But we also know that if you spend your whole life staring at your little screen, and if you never get in touch with the things around you, if you just never walk up and like just, I mean, like hug a tree, right? Like literally, like smell, taste, can you, you know, taste the bark? Can you smell it? If you never do that, you don't then, find wonder in the world around you. And then it becomes very difficult to protect the actual living world because you haven't connected with it. So I, I think spiritual practices are helpful because they remind us that there is a time for everything and to think mindfully about the way that we are engaging with our lives, the way we're walking through the world. So if I'm going to put in music, well, why am I doing that? And <clears throat> if I haven't noticed something in the world around me anytime recently. If I haven't just gone for a walk simply listening to birdsong, why haven't I done that? And to think more about it. Thank you for your question. Yes. Uh, Pat, and I'm, I'm wondering what you think is going on with the uh, current move to censor books, ban books, travel, learning about the experience of uh, people who've been oppressed. Yeah. What do you think is, what's fueling this as a popular way to govern? So this is one of those moments where I have to work really hard to stand inside someone else's experience because my, because my own experience has been that books about other ways of life and other histories and the histories of oppressed people, they have been transformative for me. And so, and at the same time, I know what it is to fear it. To see that book that sits on your shelf for a really long time because you know you should read it, 
but it's going to hurt a little bit, and so you don't go there. Uh, so that is more my experience. I, so I do think that there is fear, a fear of our worlds being disrupted when we try to cut off certain books. Uh, but I also think, you know, so I teach a course about children, too, and children's spirituality. And those conversations around censoring books or removing them from libraries or school curriculum lists, they're always more than just about ourselves as adults. They're about children. And people get very fearful for their children's imaginations. And so while I don't think that it is a good idea to censor books and remove them from our libraries, I can understand why someone might look at their child and think, I want my child's innocence to be preserved in some way. And for a lot of people, that innocence means to feel like the world has always been mostly safe and is mostly safe and will be safe. But of course, if you are a parent of a child in a group that has never been safe, it doesn't make any sense at all. So I think, I think part of what's going on is a, a very broad and understandable human desire to protect children. But depending on which little world you are in, what it looks like to protect children feels really different. Uh, and I think one of the best things that can happen in those conversations is for people to connect with each other and get to know each other's children and to think about, can I protect not only my own children but other people's children too? What would it look like to see, oh, they don't live in some way. They have real lives too. Thank you. Back here? Yeah. Hi, thank you for your presentation. Um, I guess in reference to what you just presented um, with the comments, wouldn't that be a degree of deception to the children to eliminate um, the history. Yeah. The, the, yeah, so the question is, wouldn't it, isn't it, isn't deception involved yeah. here? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, and in fact, we deceive children all the time. So I think it, um, one of the really difficult ethical questions involved not only in parenting, but in teaching, in any social program geared towards children, is thinking about the extent to which we wish to deceive children. Um, so. Anders Schinkel, the philosopher who writes about wonder, has written a great deal about children as well. It's so interesting because he's a philosopher who backed into thinking about children. And he says that education is always a mediation of the world, that the adult stands as a mediator between the world and the child, or, or the world is, is between, in some sense, the real world is between the adult and the child. The world is just happening. But you know, a child has to learn to encounter the world, and so the adult becomes a mediator of that world. And there are different ways that people think about that mediation. And for some, it's adults who want to mediate just certain parts of the world because they feel like, OK, children can only handle so much at once. So I'm not going to sit down with my six-year-old and say, you know, today, 8,000 people died in an earthquake, and 4 million children are starving because it would totally overwhelm them. And yet, at the same time, we need an education that allows children to increasingly understand the real world around them, including the world of suffering and including forces that cause them to suffer. And this is one of the things that my uh, friends who are African-American raising children have taught me, is they've said, we have to have conversations about racism so much earlier than you do. And right, and so then it so then it makes you if you are a white parent, I think it should make you stop and think, when do I start having those conversations with my kids? Not so that I overwhelm them and make them feel like the world is just unutterably broken and there's nothing they can do about it, but so that they can see that there's a long history here and they don't have to perpetuate that history. They can interrupt it. Uh, and so, but I do think that. As, as much, I mean, there's, a, there's an idealistic part of me that wants to say, well, we should just let kids see the world as it is all the time from the beginning. 
Uh, and, and yet, um, I, you know, I think most of us don't actually end up acting that way when we're raising children because children are sensitive and their imaginations are quite susceptible and they'll have nightmares and we won't sleep. You know, <laughs> so, uh, but thank, thank you so much for that question. Thank you. Uh, you've had your hand up four times. Well, I was intrigued when you were talking about we need to think in new ways. And yeah. like you went at the end, I thought, well, we actually need to think in old ways. Yeah. And so you went with our beautiful liturgy and that old story. And I, I wondered if you've explored the, the old ways of the First Nation peoples. Because I've been struck moving back into the Northeast and the beauty of nature and just the history that's here, the terrible history that's here, but also the connectivity with you know, First Nation spirituality and Franciscan spirituality, it's amazing to me, the similarities. And just if you have explored that at all. Yeah, uh, not as much as I want to. I haven't explored indigenous and native spiritualities as much as I want to, but I am um, really excited about it. I am excited about it. Yeah, so, I mean, it was actually it was a few years ago. I was just in the library looking for some text I could assign for a class, and I ran across Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, and I mentioned her here. She, if you haven't read Braiding Sweetgrass, please do. It will change your life. Uh, she is, um, she is a, uh, an indigenous um, botanist, also trained in Western botany and, eco in, and ecological science. And so every one of her chapters, every one of her essays, is it's a sermon. It's a sermon where she says, here's something in the natural world, and she really helps you understand it in its own right. Like, why do asters and goldenrod end up growing together? Well, they mutually benefit one another because of the contrast. More bees show up to asters and goldenrod that grow together. She doesn't stop there. She backs up and asks, well, what might this have to say to us as humans today? <laughs> it's a sermon. <laughs> and, but her scripture is the natural world. So I'm really taken by that approach. I mean, I'm, I am Christian, and I'm not going, I don't want to absorb someone else and just say, well, look, you're just like me, and I'm just like you, right? But, um, but I do think that, um, I think there's, uh, oh, Adam, what is the name of that wonderful history that talks about the way Europeans have for a long time thought we invented all these ideas like democracy and brought them to America? What? Yeah, The Dawn of Humanity is a fascinating book where the authors make a, a very compelling case that, in fact, questions about agency, democracy, um, forces that felled monarchies, that they actually all came from the Americas. That it was conversations with Native Americans that led Europeans into the new world of democracies that we see today. So, uh, yeah, what is it called again? The Dawn of Humanity. Yeah. So. Thank you so much. It has been a joy to be with you. Thank you. Thank you.